everyone and welcome back to Growing Pains episode 7. I hope everyone is doing well out there. Today we are joined, well first of all, first of all, uh, I am by myself this episode. Like we said last week, Carly will be doing an episode herself um, next week, but this week I am alone and I am actually with my dear sweet mother. How can you be alone and also with your mother? Well, I could be alone in the sense that my co-host does not with me. However, I am not alone in the sense that you are you are here. Okay, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> well, um, so the Robin Kevlosnakowicz, should I introduce you? Sure. Should I give a little introduction? Um, I kind of did this in the end of last week's episode, episode but and I think I've said this multiple times, but my mom um, is a psychotherapist with 30 years. 30, 30 years, 30 long years, 30 years <laughs> in private practice. She's also an author of Go Take a Path, a powerful self-care approach to extraordinary parenting. Excellent work. Art. Thank you so much. Nice plug. Thank you. And she's also a podcaster herself. She um, hosts uh, Robin's Nest. Uh, I was the first guest, so if you want to go listen to that, we also have said that in this podcast. Um, but just, you know, plugging her stuff, Thank as I so should. Much. Thank you welcome. so much. I did do a lot to bring you into this world, so <laughs> I really appreciate the plug. You're welcome. So I deserve nothing less. I was going to give, like, a little introduction, and then you could be like, hello! <laughs> but, okay, guys. But um, there's no introduction. I mean, you're here. <laughs> okay. Welcome to me. Welcome to you. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh. <laughs> thank you for being here, oh, Mom. You're, you're so welcome. Thank you for being here. Anything for you. You know, this has been a little bit of a long time coming. I mean, from the beginning of the um, thought of creating this podcast, it was in the cards that you would be making an appearance. Maybe yeah. several. Oh, wow. I know. I'm honored already. I, you should be. So we are very excited. I am very excited to have you on and I know that you have a lot of wisdom to share and we're going to start at the beginning and we'll go, we'll go through, um, no your, pressure. your humble beginnings, no pressure. But to start, we always do a story of the week, Carly and I. Mm. Um, so I don't know if you have, uh, well, first let's tell the listeners right now we, I am actually home. So we are actually recording this together, sitting right next to each other. Yeah, very exciting. Which is super fun. I just got back from a 20-mile bike ride. Um, so I'm actually, if people listen to last week's episode, I'm recording this the same night, just in full transparency. And I joined you for six, six of them. miles yes, of you the did. 20 miles. Yes, you did. But I'm old. You are not old. And I'm tired. <laughs> and I'm out of shape. You are so I had to come home. You are <laughs> Well, listen, it was good while it lasted, and then I went say, out. Yeah, I was um, out of breath. Again. Okay, no, you got to give yourself some grace. <laughs> right, okay. Um, you did it, and me. we had a good time. Yippee. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, so I, do you have a story, Mom? I don't anything, think I have a story. Come on, you have to have a story. Anything, like, spectacular that happened this week? Anything a little frustrating that happened this week? I don't think I have a story other than I would say the most exciting thing that happened to me this week is this fabulous <laughs> patio lamp, patio <laughs> heater that I have been looking high and low for. Luckily, I have a friend that works at Home Depot, so when they got some in, <laughs> this I, is got, riveting. I, got a, <laughs> I got a call. 
<laughs> I know everyone's like on the edge of their seats anyway, listening to this. We are toasty warm out here on the patio. <laughs> Let's just say that. Shout out to Mike Hammer. Shout out, Uncle Mike. <laughs> wow. That's all you got. I don't think Uncle Mike even listens to the podcast. No, I don't, I don't think, you know, this podcast is intended for Uncle Mike. Okay, fine. But if he's listening, hi, Uncle Mike, how are you doing? <laughs> um, so, I think that's it. We don't have... I got a new dishwasher. <laughs> Things are really exciting when you're 50 this, and empty nesters. Exactly. You get excited about patio heaters and super clean dishes. That's about it. <laughs> And the fact that I made it six full miles without passing out on the bike. <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, you know, you have to appreciate the little things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you do. So, I guess we're just going to dive in. Because... Right, let's dive. Um, <laughs> Sounded like more exercise for a second. Diving in. Oh, no, no, no. So, um, like I said, we are going to start, Mom, mm-hmm. by talking... By talking about your humble beginnings, mm. um, your childhood, mm. and how you got to where you are today in your career, as well mm. as your professional life. I think it would be interesting for everyone to kind of hear your journey um, and your little nuggets of wisdom that you have along the way. And I, and I can get more specific later, but why don't, That's we, great. Why, why don't we start with um, your upbringing? Well, let's see. Um, I grew up in Northeast Philadelphia. My parents got divorced when I was eight years old. And which, uh, something happened that was extremely unusual in 1976 when this occurred, which is that my mother, not my father, left the house. Mm-hmm. So I was growing up in a single parent household, but it was my father that was raising me, not my mother, which was so I can't emphasize enough how unusual this was mm-hmm. at that time. I mean, it's unusual even now, but back then it was unheard of. So nobody could understand it. So whenever anyone would say to me at school, like, well, what's your mom doing or what's your mom saying or what do you do when you get home and your mom this and your mom that? And I would explain that my mom didn't live with me. Nobody could even understand what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, is your mom dead? What do you mean? What do you mean? Where's your mom? Well, she lives, you know, about 40 minutes away what do you mean she lives 40 minutes away? So it was just, it was a very strange time. And um, so, yeah, so I grew up with my dad um, and it was um, not always the happiest home. Uh, My father was a uh, very hard worker and he really struggled to uh, provide for us. We were actually on food stamps for a while. Mm -hmm. So I grew up pretty poor, I would say. Um, And then I, you know, throughout my whole childhood, though, I always had the sense of myself that I was going to make it out of this system. I was going to make it out of this um, environment. And I think that that hope kind of pushed me through childhood but it was not always an easy time for sure right right um and I remember when you were going to go to college you had you were either not going or you applied to two schools right I was not it wasn't that I wasn't going it it was never discussed really like Mm -hmm. where 
kids today, you know, you're always hearing what, you know, it's not a matter of if you go to college, it's just where you're going to go to college. But when I was growing up, um, my parents did not really ask me much about college, but I grew up in um, an area of Philadelphia where I was surrounded by other families and those families were asking their children about college. So it was, it was in my world to go to college. Um, but I did a lot of that work on my own. But once I made the decision to go to college, my dad was very supportive of the idea of going to college. He helped me, you know, fill out applications. Um, yeah, it wasn't like they discouraged me from going right. to college. It just wasn't really top of mind. It was not right. a child focused home. It was, mm -hmm. it was just kind of surviving day to day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you did apply to school. I did apply and I do want, I want to go back for a second and say yeah. that I think that because it was not a child focused home and I was kind of relying on myself and my own motivation, it created a very independent personality. Right. I just was very self-sufficient from a very, very early age. And even though maybe that came from a place of benign neglect, I don't think my parents intended <clears throat> to do it that way or intended to be neglectful in any way. I just think that everyone was just kind of trying to survive and it was every man or woman for her, him or herself. And as a result of that, I became very self-sufficient and independent and strong-willed mm -hmm. and motivated to make a life for myself. Amazing. Mm -hmm. So keep going. So then you... So then I went to college, but I had absolutely no idea whatsoever yes, what I wanted to do. I love to this story. That she's <laughs> I about had to absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, absolutely no idea whatsoever. I should say that my mother was very much in my life, um, even though she did not live with us. Um, I did see her on the weekends, um, and she was a therapist as well. Mm -hmm. So when I went to college, I really did not see myself as having any specific skill. I didn't. I was not a good student in high school. I was a very depressed child. I was very distracted with home issues, um, and I just really had no skill set, really, or any real interest. So I got. I went to Temple. I ended up going to Temple. I had only applied to two school, two schools: University of Miami and Temple. I did not get into the University of Miami, which is not surprising because mm -hmm. I did not have good grades. And then I went to Temple, and um, I was undeclared because I had absolutely no clue whatsoever. And then I went through my uh, freshman year undeclared, and then my sophomore year undeclared. And then when I got to my second semester junior year, that was your do or die moment that you absolutely had to have a major. And I had absolutely no idea what I was going to say when I got to the front of the line to register for classes. Right, because that's how it used to work. Back in the day, there was no computer registration. You, you stood in line. In. Yes, you stood in line for hours and hours and hours. And lucky, lucky for me, I stood in line for hours because I was just standing in line and a total stranger just started talking to me, really just to pass the time. And he asked me what my major was. And I said, that's a really good question, and I better come up with an answer by the time I get to the front of this line, because I don't know. And he says, well, you have to be good at something. And I said, I'm not good at anything. And he said, I don't accept that. It was just a total stranger, but um, he just kept grilling me, you know, well, do you like math? Oh, God, no. Do you like science? No. Do you like <laughs> biology? Absolutely not. No. And when he finally got to psychology, I said, you know, the only thing I could probably see myself doing is psychology. 
But my mom's a therapist. And at that particular time in my life, I had a terrible relationship with my mom for all the obvious reasons. She had left us. I was very angry with her. I was sort of blaming her for all of the issues I had in my childhood. And the last thing I wanted to do is give her the satisfaction of following in her footsteps. Mm -hmm. So there was just no way I was going to be a therapist. And when I told him that, when I told this random stranger that, he literally turns his back on me in the line. And I I thought that was so rude. And I was like, what are you doing? Why did you turn your back? And he said, that is just the stupidest thing I ever heard. If you want to be a therapist, be a therapist. And I was like, all right, well, I didn't have any (laughs) other options. I mean, I had to pick something. And so then once I picked psychology as a major, you know, the rest, the rest is history. Is history. <laughs> her story. Her story. Period. Period. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that that story is so, I don't know, every time you tell it, first of all, from the waiting in line to register for classes mm-hmm. to the not knowing what you want to do until you literally are in that line yeah. to this man that literally changed your life. Yeah, like, he did. Of, of being like, you're being ridiculous. Yeah. Like, you need to do this and you have become an amazing therapist. Thank you. Um, so you went, so to speed the story along, mm-hmm. get to where where you are now, you you finished undergrad I finished undergrad but there was the one of the biggest reasons I was I never even considered considered psychology was because I knew I had to go to graduate school and I had absolutely no money for college or graduate school I was going to undergrad on loans anyway so um, by the time like there was just no option of going to graduate school I needed to get a job and quickly and there was psychology did not pay hardly anything mm-hmm. So, um, but here I was, I got my bachelor's degree in psychology and ironically, my mother was working at a hospital called the Horsham Clinic, which is still there today. Um, and she got me a job there. I didn't know it was mama. Yeah. Yeah. She got me a job there as a mental health assistant. So there was no such job as a mental health assistant. It was a mental health technician, but you had to have a bachelor's degree for that. But when I was like a junior, senior in college and I needed a job, they they let me take on the job of mental health technician, but they couldn't call me that because I didn't have a bachelor's degree. So they just gave me the same job for a little less pay and called me a mental health assistant. But it was amazing because it gave me a jump start on my career. So here I am, right. like 20 years old, and I'm already working in the field. Right, right, which is, it just sets you up for it everything. It set me up for everything. I mean, and it set you up too for grad school because when, mm. you, I think if you ha- you said before that you didn't have the best grades even in undergrad. No, no. I didn't. Once I declared my major and I started taking classes in my major I started to do much better in college mm-hmm. but all the gen eds yeah. and all that stuff I was like a BC student I right. mean nothing very average yeah. but like to become a licensed counselor you mm-hmm. need to go to grad school but mm-hmm. you took that time in right. between undergrad and grad school to work I had to work you had to mm-hmm. to survive mm-hmm. and you had and it wasn't really an option at that point to go to grad school because you didn't have the money no and at that time my father moved to Florida so I literally had nowhere to live either so I had to you know my my focus was just on survival again right. it was how do I you know live how do I pay for rent how do I feed myself. It, mm-hmm. I wasn't even really thinking about graduate school at that point. I mm-hmm. just needed to get out of college, get a job and find an apartment. Right. So you just had to find an apartment. You were surviving. Right. That's about the only thing that was on your mind at this at this time. Right. So after I graduated, 
they gave me a raise. So I became a mental health technician and I started doing real therapy, believe it or not. Back then you could sort of do that with a bachelor's degree. You can't really do that now. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, this is 1987, 1980. No, I'm sorry. It's 1990 at this point um, because I had graduated in 86. So I graduated college in 1990. And, you know, I started, I still can remember the name of my first client. Like, really? I, yeah. My first client, at, uh, you know, at Horsham Clinic. Right. And then um, the best thing that happened to me at Horsham Clinic, aside from getting all this great experience, was that I got a um, certification in group psychotherapy. Right. Which was a really amazing program. See, this is back again in 1990 mm-hmm. where insurance companies paid for a lot of things that they don't pay for now. So hospitals were very wealthy and they were able to pay for education for their for their staff. And there was a doctor named Dr. Delabadia. Shout out to Dr. Delabadia. <laughs> should, should he be listening? Um, who ran a group psychotherapy certification program. And we ran as a group for, I think, 40 weeks. And at the end of this program, you became a certified group psychotherapist. And I loved it so much. I loved group therapy so much that all I wanted to do was run a group. So then I got, was looking for a job outside of the hospital where I could run group all the time, Mm -hmm. which I did. I got a job at Today Incorporated, which is not there anymore, but I was there for many, many years Mm -hmm. running group. Can you explain why you loved group so much? Oh. Because I think a lot of people that are listening, I'm, I'm just making an assumption mm-hmm. from the young people that I know, mm-hmm. therapy is a little bit, I mean, therapy is becoming less taboo, mm-hmm. but especially I feel like group and being, yeah. you know, I, I think I, I had said in a previous episode too that I had run group before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really, really healing in mm-hmm. a lot of different ways. So yeah. I would be curious if you could speak on that um, as a therapist and why you just fell in love with group. I fell in love with, with group because it, it, it brings out a whole different set of dynamics. So the group very quickly and unconsciously becomes like a family mm-hmm. and everybody takes on their role. So if you're somebody who is extremely um, anxious with silence in general in your life, then you're somebody in a group who's going to keep filling the space. Mm-hmm. If you're somebody who takes a back seat, in life and tends to be more of a wallflower, you're going to do that in group. If you're somebody who's very confrontive, you're going to be confrontive in group. So all of your issues are fully on display for Mm -hmm. the group therapist. Mm -hmm. And you can really work on yourself because it's a safe place for Mm -hmm. people to talk about what it's like to be in a room with someone who doesn't talk, what it's like to be in a room with someone who doesn't stop talking, what it's like to be in a room with somebody who is super, um, uh, conflict focused and, you know, constantly stirring trouble. Mm -hmm. I mean, or someone who's constantly late, you know, because if you're always late in life, you're going to be late Late for group, group. Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's just such a rich, rich way to, um, do therapy. Mm -hmm. So I loved it. And when I started working at Today Incorporated, I got to run group 90 minutes every day, Monday through Friday. And did you love it? I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what was the? I mean, this could just be for me too. Mm-hmm. But what was the um, population like of ages? Oh, I was uh, today incorporated. I should have said this was a drug and al- drug and alcohol 
rehab center. And again, we're still talking about the 1990s when there was lots of money for this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So like today, if someone goes into drug and alcohol treatment center, it's usually for 28 days at best. Yeah. I mean, that's if you're lucky and have great insurance. But back in the day, you were there for 90 days. Wow. Yeah. So imagine like having this group psychotherapy that I was just describing every day for 90 days. Um, you really got, you know, serious therapy. And you were yeah. meeting with your individual therapist, the per Two. same person that's running your group, uh, one time a week. Wow. Individually. So you were talking in your individual therapy about the dynamics that were showing up in group. So it was really rich. It was a really rich learning experience. And I had great teachers there. I had um, two supervisors, Mike Black, who is unfortunately deceased, mm. and Deborah Rogers, who is still around, um, who really taught me a lot. Yeah. And was this before you went to grad school? Yes. So um, back then, and this is such a um, God moment, I guess, um, back then, it, working in rehab, you didn't really need a master's degree. You really just, in fact, having a bachelor's degree was considered um, an advanced degree because a lot of people in rehab only had to be a recovering addict. Um, I was not a recovering addict, but I had a bachelor's degree, so I was qualified in that way. Um, what was encouraged, though, was to get a, um, a degree. It, it was called a CAC, Certifi Certified Addictions Counselor. And the rehab really encouraged me to get this certificate. So I have to say getting my CAC, Certification in Addictions Counseling, was harder than my master's degree. Mm. It was very complicated. You had to do all kinds of case studies. It was just you had to go to Harrisburg and take a test. You had to do an oral exam. You had to do a written exam. It was extremely complicated. But I did finally get this degree. Well, good <laughs> thing I did because fast forward after I decided to go back and get my master's degree in counseling, um, I went to a program at Temple that I absolutely loved. It was wonderful. The Counseling Psychology Program at Temple University. Shout out to them. Shout out to them. I will be applying next year. <laughs> uh, it was an excellent program. However, um, my, I, I believe my, my master's program was a 48-credit master's. And when licensure came along, when you needed to have a license to practice, you had to have gone to a program that offered a 60 credit master's. So I was in serious trouble because right. I was like not in a place in my life where I was going back to school for 12 more credits. Right. But because but. God is always watching out for me, <laughs> one of the um, grandfather, you could be grandfathered in if you had a certified CAC. addictions counselor. Right. So, um, thank God I had it and thank God I had maintained it because then I was able to apply and sit for the licensing exam and I passed of course. And <laughs> now, now I'm a licensed. So. Yeah. So now I'm licensed and, um, it was all because they forced me to get the CAC, right. which, which I did not want to do on my own because it was so difficult to obtain. Right. Right. And then you got your license mm -hmm. and Kept working. Kept working. And then eventually moved into private practice. Well, then I went from Today Incorporated. Yeah, I'm having trouble talking. Today right. Incorporated. Um, I was there for several years. And then I was hired as the clinical director of Liberté, which is a drug and alcohol facility for women and, for women and women with children. So it was 
obviously not the children that were addicted, but mothers who were addicted could bring their children to the family house of Liberté. And that's where I met one of my best friends, yes. Maureen McCormick. Maureen. Shout out to Maureen, who does not listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're just calling people out. Yeah, left absolutely. Right. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, so I think that all of this to say, I think to why we're sharing this story, why I wanted my mom to share this, is because I think it really just shows uh, that you can't – like my mom was saying, like, she, you had a goal. You had a goal. Mm-hmm. You were going to do whatever it took mm-hmm. to get it. Mm-hmm. You knew you had to work. Yep. You knew that this was what you were good at. Right. And you just did it. Yeah. Despite I, it, mm-hmm. everything that happened growing up. Well, I wouldn't say in spite. I would almost say because of. Because of. Yes. I think that um, I was always really just a natural born therapist. I think I was a therapist for my whole life. Mm-hmm. And um, I always say to you, and I've said it to you in my podcast, <laughs> you know, that therapists are better chosen than trained, which is a quote by Irvin Yalom, who is a famous psychiatrist. Yes. And what he means by that is that, you know, you take somebody who isn't really a natural born healer or therapist and you train them all the way through a PhD level, they're still not going to be a good therapist. You have to be the essence of you needs to be one of healing. And I think that I um, had that in me from the very beginning. And I think a lot of the reason why I'm a good therapist, one of the reasons that I'm a good therapist today is because I have been there. I have suffered. I know pain. I know depression. I know anxiety. Um, I know abandonment. I know lots of, you know, the same feelings that my clients are going through. Issues with your mom, issues with your kids, issues (laughs) with your dad, issues with your siblings. You know, I've lived it and I've worked through it and and I've lived to tell the tale. Mm -hmm. And I think that people can, you know, the essence of who I am is I think what is healing to people, not the training necessarily that I have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree. Mm -hmm. I, I, as someone who has been lucky in my upbringing Mm -hmm. I think that part of my fear as becoming a therapist is that I won't have that experience but I but I also think and stuff that you've Mm -hmm. said is that you know I I had such an upbringing that has allowed me to see the world in different ways Mm um and have the support system from my childhood to then go out into the world and see, you know, this, the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't believe in any way that you need to have suffered in order to be helpful. In fact, it reminds me so much of when I was working in a drug and alcohol facility and the people would say, the people meaning the clients, oh, well, you can't help me because you're not a recovering, recovering. person. And it's just not true. I mean, and in fact, the... The staff that were in recovery used to constantly confront the clients whenever they would say that and say that that's just an excuse because how could you say that somebody who does not have a drug and alcohol problem has nothing to teach you? Maybe (laughs) you want to learn how they did it. You know, I mean, the whole idea is to live a sober lifestyle. Well, I've always lived a sober lifestyle, so maybe you, maybe I do have something to right. offer. Well, the same thing is true for you. If you did not have a life of enormous pain and suffering, you have, you know, things to share mm-hmm. with people from that perspective as well. 
I don't think in any way you need to be um, somebody who has yeah. gone through a very difficult time in order to be a healing. I think the fact that you are a compassionate human being is what is the most important thing. And I have felt like you're an old soul and a healer from the very beginning. Well, thank you. Um, it's just true. <laughs> so I kind of want to go into a little bit of what you have learned from being a therapist and mm. you can take this from you know what have you learned about people what have you learned about how the world works what have you learned as being someone who is a therapist having to bear witness mm -hmm. to your client's pain um you know that's a, those are a lot mm -hmm. and uh, I wherever you want to go with that what was the first part of that question what have you learned about people? Oh. You know, my experience of people is that um, everyone really mostly just wants to be seen mm -hmm. and heard and understood. That the goal of therapy is not to fix people's problems. Um, I don't see myself as a fixer. Um, I don't think problems are to be fixed. I think that we're supposed to be learning from all of the experiences that we're having. And I think that we have that innate healing within ourselves, sort of like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz when um, the wizard says, you had the power all along, my dear. You know, all you had to do is click your feet. You know, I think that we all individually have everything that we need to move us through whatever we're struggling with. Um, and what helps people realize that they have their own, um, answers to their own problems is to have, to, to hold space for somebody, mm -hmm. to truly listen to them, to really, really deeply hear them and let them know that what they're saying makes sense. Mm -hmm. And once people feel like they're heard and seen, then they can figure out what they need to do next. It is not my job to tell somebody what to do next in their life. It's not my life. Right. And you know, what I would do is very different and what's right for me is very different than what's right for you and what's right for everyone else. So I, you know, would never, um, tell somebody you should do this or you should do that. But I do, I mean, my reputation as a therapist is very, very honest, which is the same <laughs> reputation I have as a friend and as a mother <laughs> and as a wife and as a daughter and as a sibling. And so I'm sort of the same person in every relationship. Um, so I share with people what I see. Um, if, I, if I see that somebody has an addiction, then I say, I think you have an addiction. If I see somebody as an abuser, I say, I see you as an abuser. If I see somebody who is a victim of abuse, I say, I think you're a victim of abuse. Now, does that make it the truth? I don't think it's the truth, but it's my truth. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's worth them hearing another person's perspective. And I think that that's why a lot of people come to me. Mm -hmm. That is definitely my reputation in the therapy community is that I am somebody who's going to tell you the truth <laughs> from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you have to decide whether or not that fits for you or it doesn't fit for you. But it's very helpful to have another set of eyes and another set of ears listening to what's happening and have a different perspective. And then you do with that what you wish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, we have both been in therapy mm -hmm. for a while, too. I, a lot of my friends always ask me, um, 
are therapists in therapy? Uh, any good therapist is in therapy. Period. I would not be going to any therapist that is not in therapy, him or herself. Period. Absolutely Everyone remember not. that. Ask your therapist. Yes. Because how can, you can only take someone else as far as you have gone. End of story. Period. End of story. If you, you know, one of the reasons that you know, my mom died in 2012, and when we, when she died, we ended on a very, very good note, and we had a very, very good relationship at the end of her life, and that was only possible because I made the decision when I was in my 20s to go into therapy with my mom to resolve all the anger that I had for her leaving me, and we were in therapy together for many, many years, and we worked on our relationship for many, many years. And the reason I did that was not because I had a burning desire to have a great relationship with my mom. I was too angry to have a burning desire to have a relationship with a good relationship with my mom. The reason was that same part of me that we talked about at the beginning of this, of this session, (laughs) (laughs) the beginning of this podcast, which is that I always had this strong desire to succeed. And I knew that as a therapist, I was not going to succeed with with clients who had issues with their mother unless I was willing to work on my own issues with my own mother. Mm. So I went into therapy with my mom for selfish reasons. I wanted to be a great therapist and I wasn't going to let my mom hold me back from one more thing. Mm. But thank God I did because by working on my relationship with my mom, not only did I become a better therapist, but I, you know, we, we ended up having a really wonderful relationship, relationship, you know, for the last 10, 20 years of her life. Right. So shifting gears again, mm-hmm. um, pardon me for shifting gears a lot. I just, there's so much that I think you have to say mm-hmm. that I want you, not that you necessarily mm-hmm. have to say, but that I want you to say <laughs> and talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of what's happening right now, um, given COVID and we've talked about it on the podcast, mm-hmm. it's just kind of how crazy this time has been, um, is self-care which is mm-hmm. um the whole subtitle of your book yes. and that's also it's on parenting but it's it's really about it, all relationships all, yeah sometimes when i was doing book when i was doing my book tour people would come over to me after the book tour even though i was talking only about parenting and they would say it really sounds like your book is about a lot more than parenting i'm like yes yes it is yes it really it's it's about parenting but it's about really all relationships right. for sure and it's and it's about taking care of yourself first all relationships all relationships all. are rooted in deep profound self-care that is the foundation to all healthy relationships with your friends, with your partner, with your parents, with your children. You have to have profound self-care as the core of all of them. If you don't, re- resentment builds really fast, um, hurt feelings, mm-hmm. um, all of the, all the all things. Yeah. yeah. Nothing good. Right. And I think that especially during this time when we are trying to continue with our lives, continue Mm -hmm. as normal, Mm -hmm. I think that, and again, I have said this, but I think a lot of this time has shown me um, that none of that matters, uh, the the stuff. The stuff will be there. The stuff is just stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm talking, I'm talking school. Oh, yeah. My my Mm -hmm. mom has a lot to say about school. I do. I'm talking, we'll get there. I'm talking school. I'm talking um, jobs. I'm talking running yourself ragged, trying to maintain this lifestyle that you might have had pre-COVID, what you might still have. And at the end of the day, that break that we had from March to August, 
really, because I was someone who was running myself ragged mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of jobs and I, I had this, uh, you know, expectation to get such and such grades and all of my friendships. And it was a lot. And that time really was like, take a second and focus on yourself. And that is something that I think that I know I am taking into this mm-hmm. next year. And especially now while school is happening. Yes, I think that one of the bright spots of 2020 is that we all have had to slow down. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are in a forced slowdown. What's most important, our health, the health of our family, and just surviving each day. Happiness. Yeah. Peace. Peace. I would say peace even more than happiness. Okay. I think happiness is overrated <laughs> because, you know, Mahan Rishi, who I hope to have on my podcast someday, mm-hmm. he's like my guru, my yogi guru. Um, but he always talks about that the goal is not to have a positive mind or a negative mind, but to have a neutral mind. Mm. That things are just what they are. Mm-hmm. We don't have to look at them in a sunny disposition kind of a way because that's not real. Yeah. And or to look at it in a negative way, but to instead look at it just as it is. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. And this is what is happening for us right now. So, you know, trying to stay positive about it is not really authentic. Right. Because there's nothing really positive about it. Right. It's Well, there are things. There are, I think, bright spots to 2020, like I said. Um, you know, I think that it's really forcing all of us to reprioritize our life. And, um, but I do think that just moving through your life with a neutral mind and accepting things as they are. I always use the metaphor with you about mm-hmm. the boat, you know, that life is like a river. And my, I think our goal is to keep the oars in the boat and let the river take us wherever it's going to take us. And sometimes it's going to take us to a really beautiful spot and we want to stay there longer. And our instinct is to get out our oars and to paddle against the current so that we can stay in this beautiful space. But no matter how hard we you know, we're paddling, the boat is going to go because there's a river and there's a current to life Mm -hmm. that is just going to keep us moving. And then we get to dark places and we want to move through those quickly. So we start worrying, you know, we start paddling in a way, you know, to try to get through it as quickly as possible. But no matter how much we're paddling, there's a current to the river and we're going to be in this space for as long as we need to be in this space. And I think that peace, which I think is much more the goal than happiness, mm. is really just keeping your oars in the mm-hmm. boat and accepting life on life's terms. Well, that's what I was just going to bring up is radical acceptance. My favorite. Yep, which we have been working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think 2020 is all about radical Yes, and I think also something that you've said in the past is when you were struggling with something, I don't remember quite what it was, but you were like, I can't accept this. I can't accept this. This is no, no, no. And then you came to this realization where you said, I radically accept that I cannot accept it. Yeah, that was I Donald Trump. This. Oh, about Donald. I thought yes. you were, meant Donald Trump said that, Mom. No. <laughs> oh, yeah, that'll be the day. I was no. like, what? No, it was right after I, I went to a DBT training, which Dialectical is, Behavioral Therapy. Exactly, <laughs> uh, which is a really interesting um, type of therapy. And I was in this training, and it's all skills-based training. You could all look it up, DBT. And um, one of the skills is radical acceptance. And I was thinking about it during the course, and I was thinking, yeah, no. <laughs> I 
can't do that. Can't do it. There are certain things like accepting Donald Trump that I just can't do. Mm -hmm. And then they got to a point, they were pointing out how you can always radically accept something. And I'm shaking my head, no. Mm -mm, Can't do it. it. Nope, nope. You don't know me. No. (laughs) You don't know Robin. (laughs) Yes. And then finally they got to a place where they said sometimes the best you can do is radically accept that you will never radically accept it. Mm. And then it was like, hits. ding, 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 ding. (laughs) And then I realized that there is peace to that. Mm -hmm. There is a peace to radically accepting parts of your life that you can never radically accept. Yes. And that's when they got me. That's when I fell in love with radical Uh, acceptance. And that helps in so many areas. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Like, so many like parts of my life I can think of of just like what was that or like what is this world what is happening in the world right now mm-hmm. and and just being like that line I radically accept that I will never ever <laughs> ever accept this yes exactly but I radically accept yep, that fact exactly and that feels like a huge it felt like, like exactly it does weight an exhale of mm-hmm. like. This will never be okay to me, but I radically accept that I'm feeling like that. I can radically accept that it will never be okay for me. Right. Yeah. And like that's – yeah. And I just think as we go through this time, that's so – this self-care piece, this radical acceptance, it's going to – like I have been working on it because I have a hard time radically accepting mm-hmm. things. I'm getting a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that has helped so much in dealing with this mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. because – yeah. This time is cray. <laughs> she said this time is cray. It is. It's cray. It's cray. Hashtag. Mm-hmm. Hashtag, Hashtag cray. It. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's just being like, I. this isn't, I radically accept that this is just mm-hmm. absolutely insane. Yeah. And if you can radically accept how insane it is, then you can forgive yourself for all the things that you're not doing. Right? Yes. Because you really can't yes. do much. You can't. You can't and, do much. And also... If we're talking about school, for mm-hmm. instance, you know, I, I'm on Twitter all the time and mm-hmm. there's so many young people who are like, this online stuff is X, Y, Z, it sucks, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we need to radically accept that this is unlike anything we've ever done. So we are going to respond in ways that we haven't yeah. responded before. And that's okay. And I radically accept whatever grade I am going to get. Exactly. Um, in my practice, I have a very strict 48-hour cancellation policy, and I have a 2020 clause. <laughs> if you don't show up, it's fine. <laughs> really, you know like how Oprah always says, you get a car? Well, not yeah. always, but that time. One time. Yeah. You get a car, and you get a car, and I keep saying, you get a pass, and you get a pass, and you get a pass, because we have to give all of us, we have to give each other a pass. And most important, yourself. Yourself. You have to yourself. give yourself a pass. A pass about everything. Absolutely everything. This is a crazy time. And just wake up every morning. That is your goal. Wake up and breathe. Wake up, make your bed. Oh, that, yes. I highly recommend making your bed. I just was talking about this the other day. When I don't make my bed, because sometimes I, I don't, mess. I am a mess all day. It's, I'm telling you, it sets up your day. It does. Um, so a mess, a, a, making your bed and showering first thing in the morning. See, I don't shower first thing in the uh, morning, but I do at night. Mm-hmm. But I think the the goal for the listeners out there that <laughs> my mom, make your bed. My mom and I are, are um, what's the word I'm looking Sympatico? for? Sympatico? Not sim- what's sympatico? Sympatico, like we're... I think oh, we're the, saying... Yes. I was going to say... Er, oh, uh, the... the um, we're of one mind. <laughs> we 
are of one mind <laughs> regarding sometimes. the bed. Regarding, but I was gonna say what my mom and I urge you to do if we could leave you with something this mm-hmm. episode is if you just get up and make your bed, mm-hmm. and that's enough. It's enough. And it's enough. Yep. And if you have a meal, that'd be great. That would be good. Eat, drink, <laughs> drink some water. That's it. And then if you accomplish those few things, consider yourself a huge success. It's 2020. <laughs> That's it's ridiculous it. out there. I mean, it's absolutely cray. <laughs> you don't like when I say cray? I like it when you say cray. I just think it's really funny. Okay, okay. sorry. It is. It is absolutely cray out there. Mm-hmm. And so we just... And so when you put it. expectations on yourself as if this is a normal time, it's just, it's just such a setup. I mean, you're just going to be miserable because you're going to fall short every single second of the day. And I think that 2020 is really about teaching us to have far lower expectations of ourselves. Yes, which we should have in general. Self-care. That's your goal. That's it. Self-care. Nothing else. (laughs) Please just take care of yourself. Yes, that's it. And do what's best for you in every aspect of your life. All the time. All the time, without even exception. if it disappoints others. Especially if it disappoints others. There it is. Without exception. At the end of your life, the only thing you're going to care about is that you did what you wanted to do. It will not give you any consolation at the end of your life that at least your mom was happy with you. Or at least your, your neighbor didn't get mad at you when you did X, Y, and Z. The only thing you're going to care about is that you did what you wanted every step of the way. Period. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Um, so our last topic for this episode is boundaries. Oh, abs- boundaries. I love that. It's my favorite topic. Your absolute favorite topic. It really is. Um, I mean, I think you should just dive in. Okay. Well, boundaries and self-care are like synonymous. They're hand in hand. Yes. They, they are best friends. In order for you to take exquisite care of yourself, you have to have boundaries. You have to set boundaries with people and you have to set boundaries with yourself. So what do you mean by that, Mom? <laughs> Elaborate, please. Oh, God. I don't know how to explain it. What about, Give I think, an, uh, example. an example for boundaries within yourself? Because I feel like people could understand boundaries with other people, mm-hmm. you know, saying no. But what do you mean boundaries within ourselves? Uh, setting a boundary that you're going to be pleased with yourself if all you do is make your bed and take a shower. Mm-hmm. Um, and set that boundary so that you are not... Um, setting your up, yourself up for wild disappointment and feeling horrible about yourself at the end of the day. Setting boundaries around, I, like for me, for example, sometimes if I have a day off, I could lay in bed all day. People yep. find that hard to believe because I have a, 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 you know, I seem to have a lot of energy. But the reality is, I don't always have a lot of energy. And if I have a day off, I love to lay in bed all day. But is laying in bed all day really, really taking care of myself and and really true self-care? I don't think so. So what I will do is I will say to myself, I'm going to set a boundary of I'm going to allow myself to lay in bed without guilt, without feeling like I should, don't should on yourself, people. (laughs) I used to have a sign in my office that says don't should on yourself today. Do not should on yourself about anything. There is no shoulds. So instead of laying in bed and thinking I should be getting up, which I don't want to do because that's very, um, it's very critical of myself. Instead, I'll just set a boundary for myself. Like 
I am going to lay in bed and I am going to enjoy every second of it doing absolutely nothing. Maybe I'm watching Netflix. Maybe I'm scrolling through Facebook. Maybe I'm reading a book. Whatever I'm doing, I'm going to lay in this bed and I'm not going to feel one bit of guilt about it. But at 11 o'clock, I'm getting my ass up and I'm getting in the shower and I'm making my bed and I'm starting my day. Right. You know, and having boundaries with yourself like that or with food. You know, I really want to have a brownie. Have a brownie. Allow have you, it. Have, allow yourself to have the brownie and then set a boundary with yourself that you're going to feel satisfied having just had one brownie and not need to have six. Mm. So that's what I mean when I say right. boundaries with right. yourself. Right. And that is synonymous with boundaries with other people because it's a part of self-care. Yeah. Boundaries with other people are the basis of all healthy relationships. Um, you have to know what your personal limits are in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, if, if a friend says to you, hey, let's go out tomorrow night and you just don't want to, you are allowed to say, I'm not up for it tomorrow night without needing to give an explanation. This whole idea that we have to keep explaining ourselves to people have got, has got to go. We are allowed to make decisions for ourselves every minute of the day and just simply say, I've decided to stay in tonight. How come? Period. How come? No reason. <laughs> no reason. I know. I've decided to um, go home early tonight. Oh, yeah? How come? Early day tomorrow? No. <laughs> no early day tomorrow. I just decided to go home. How come? No reason. <laughs> Why do we feel like we need to give reasons to everybody about everything? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just... We just, at the end of the day, just have to honor ourselves and we don't need to explain it. Exactly. And resentment, the definition of resentment is betrayal of self. I'm going to repeat that because it's extremely important. When you start to feel a resentment towards somebody else, it is because you have betrayed yourself somewhere. You did not set a boundary for you. Not that somebody somebody did something to you. It is totally normal for people to ask for what they need from you. So if somebody says, I really need you to stay here all night because I don't want to be here alone, that's okay. They're allowed to ask that, and you're allowed to say, actually, no, that doesn't work for me. How come? No reason. <laughs> Mic drop. Exactly. You don't need to explain it. It just doesn't work for me. That is the end of the sentence. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more to say. You don't owe anybody any explanation. And if you keep giving them explanations, they're going to keep asking you more questions. And then you're going to have a resentment toward that person. And you have no reason to feel resentment toward them. Because they are just asking for what they need at the end of the day. They have every right to ask for what they need. And you have every right to say say no. Without explanation. I can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. You don't have to explain You don't need to yourself. say because I have to be up early or because I You don't need a good homework. reason. You don't need a good I reason. I just want to go to sleep. You don't even have to say that. You don't even have to say it. You though. don't even have to say it. Then, because then someone's going to say, oh, my, and I've heard this myself. Oh, well, how old are you? 80? You know, like it just, it just, it just um, elicits a right. response from the other person that you really don't want to deal with. Right. So just say, I'm going to sleep now. Why? No reason. I want to. Tired. <laughs> you know, I, but, right. I don't know. I, I don't yeah, know. No, it may, yeah, no, it makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. At the end of the day, what you're saying mm-hmm. is just honor yourself. Honor yourself. So, 100% of the time. And that goes into self-care, which obviously, and boundaries, right. and of not need, not um, ex- over-explaining and not... Um, 
having explanations for people on why you are tr- choosing to do what XYZ. But let me also say that by doing that, it is one of the most selfless things you can do. Selfless, not selfish. So some people may think of that as being very selfish because you're doing what you want to do all of the time. But it's actually a very selfless thing to do because when you honor yourself, you are now in relationship with people in an authentic way. And it is the most beautiful gift you can give to another person. So people in my life, for example, if if someone says to me, hey, do you want to come over tonight? And I say yes, there is no doubt in their mind that there's nowhere else I'd want to be. Because if I didn't want to be there, I would simply say, it's not a good night for me without explanation. It's not a good night for me. That's it. But when I say, yeah, that sounds fun, they believe me. Mm-hmm. So you, you are enriching all of your relationships the more you can set boundaries in those relationships. Mic drop. <laughs> Amazing. That's it. I mean, that's it. That's I mean, it. that. If there's anything that I think I would want your listeners to know from this podcast, if they take anything away from this, the most important thing to me is boundaries. Get to know them, love them, embrace them, make friends with them, don't apologize for them, don't explain it to people. Right. And if I could tie this into the title of our podcast. That boundaries are a way to lessen the pains of growing because Mm -hmm. you are ultimately taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is the most important thing. And I think a lot of our growing up uh, pains of growing and these transitions that we're experiencing is that we are constantly in limbo with things Mm -hmm. like relationships or school, careers. And it's ultimately just having boundaries with all of those things and honoring yourself throughout Mm -hmm. it all. What do I want to do for me? Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the best things that I do as a therapist is role model boundaries for my clients. So if my clients, for example, want to call me because something came up with their kid in the middle of the week, that's not okay. That's my time. If you want to have a session with me about that, then I will schedule a session with you. But even though they may initially feel kind of put off by that, it is all by design. I'm trying to show them by example that my time is my time. I don't need to explain it. I simply write them back and I say, here are my available appointment times. Let me know what you'd like. And then they know when you are with them that you are with them. And when I am with them, nothing else in the world exists. My phone is off. I'm not thinking about anything else. Mm -hmm. I am completely committed to them for the 50 minutes that they are in my office. And they appreciate that. Right. And that's what makes you an extraordinary therapist. Thank you. Because of the boundaries. Oh, yeah. The boundaries are the cornerstone of all relationships. And I think especially a therapeutic relationship. Right. And that's, you know, what I say to you a lot as you're training to become a therapist that I think that that's going to be the thing that you're going to really need to work on the most because you're somebody who's so incredibly compassionate and you're going to hear a lot of stories from a lot of people because people are in a lot of pain and being a, this is another example by you having really clear boundaries of, you know, this is not my pain. I am just bearing witness to their pain by doing that. You're going to be able to help many more people. If you don't have strong boundaries and you go home at night and you're crying yourself to sleep because of the story you heard that day, 
you're going to burn yourself out within five years of practice and you're not going to be able to help all the people that right. need you. Right. So that's why boundaries matter and in it, all yeah. relationships. Yeah, and it, it just bleeds into every single other mm -hmm. part of your life. Correct. Every, every single part. Yes, it's the most important thing for yes. sure. So I think that we have made that point clear. Yes. That at the, this episode, <laughs> get out that you need to set boundaries with yes. yourself and with other people. Yeah. Um, it will ultimately make you more at peace. Yep. So I think, that, I think that's a wrap. I think that's a wrap. I think that we hit on a lot of topics. Um, I so appreciate you, Mom, for all of all of your wisdom. It has been a blessing to be your daughter. It has been a blessing to be your mother. And I mean that sincerely. I mean what I said sincerely. <laughs> Thank you. I love um, you. I love you too. I hope everyone out there enjoyed this episode. Um, I hope you took something out of it. I hope you'll tune into Robin's Nest yes, podcast. Yes, well, I was going to get there. Well, I just wanted to make sure okay. I plugged myself. Plug it in. Oh, for sure. So <laughs> if you want to hear more from this lovely woman, um, please go check out her podcast. She has a podcast. It's called Robin's Nest. You can find her on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere you listen. Everywhere you listen to um, podcasts, I'm there. Yes, and you can find her on Instagram as well if you want to be up to date on what she posts. It's at Robin's underscore Nest underscore pod. Thank you, R. You're welcome. Um, please let us know what I would love to hear what everyone took away from this episode the most. Me too. Um, so go to our Instagram at growing pains underscore pod. Let me know. Um, once again, thank you, Mom, for being here. Thank you for asking me. Of course. And next week, Carly is going to be alone. Like I said, she's going to be doing an episode on breakups, which is kind of like the third episode of the trilogy on relationships. <laughs> um, so please tune in for that. And I will see you all in two weeks when I am back together with my co-host, who I miss so much already. Carly and Carly. <laughs> um, I hope everyone has an amazing day, week, night, morning, whatever you are listening to this. And I will see you in the next one. Signing off.